The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles and uh, open up to the book of Daniel. We're back in Daniel chapter 9, and uh, we're approaching uh, a text that's considered to be one of the most uh, important and one of the most difficult prophecies of all of the Old Testament. Uh, Daniel chapter 9 is where we'd find that prophecy, but just to refresh your memory, the beginning of uh, Daniel chapter 9 opened up with a, with a prayer. Uh, let's take a look at uh, Daniel chapter 9 and uh, just read the first couple of verses for you. Daniel chapter 9, starting at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Uh, The first year of Darius, the king of Ahasuerus, is a time marker that lets us know that the prophet Daniel had just witnessed the rise and fall of an era. In Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, it lets us know that Daniel was there when the Babylonian kingdom rose to power. In uh, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1, it opens with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And verse 3 says the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family of the nobles, of which Daniel was one. And uh, Daniel was taken in that initial siege in Jerusalem in 605 B.C. And now it's about 67 years later, and Daniel is still in Babylon when Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, so uh, the, the kingdom is changing hands. Uh, some believe uh, this uh, uh, Darius uh, was a, another name for Cyrus the Great, but I believe it's better to see this as a subordinate of Cyrus the Great who ruled and governed over Babylon during this time, the same Darius who sent Daniel to the lion's den. And according to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 2, it was in the first year of his reign that Daniel says he was observing in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem. Seventy years. And that's an important key for us to understand how we're expected to read and to understand biblical prophecy. Uh, The approach that takes into account the specific words, the grammar, pays attention to the natural meaning of those words, is most consistent with the way that we read all of Scripture. It's the same way that Daniel would have understood himself how to read Scripture. Because 70 years was what? 70 years. (laughs) He's looking at 70 years, and he's expecting the fulfillment of the Word of the Lord to happen. A literal, grammatical, historical approach to Scripture. And this is going to be so helpful for us as we begin to work through some of the prophetic section that we'll touch on today. uh, Because we want to understand our Bibles the way that Daniel understood his Bible he gives us the, the blueprint. You know, prophecy wasn't uh, just some vague and generic, you know, kind of uh, literature. It's not just merely symbolic. Uh, he understands that Jeremiah, uh, who he's reading from, is talking about real time, 
real events, real nations, normal language. Yes, it has to be interpreted, but it's not impossible. You don't need some kind of secret decoder ring to figure out what the Bible says. We understand the words of prophecy in the same way we would seek to understand all of what Scripture would have to say within its context, reading it as normal language. And uh, we'll come back to that idea a number of times before we leave the book of Daniel. But part of the prophecy, and why don't you just turn here in Jeremiah chapter 29, part of the prophecy that Daniel was observing was reading in the book of Jeremiah, and this is where he would have landed upon this 70 years. Jeremiah 29, take a look at verse 10. Jeremiah 29, starting at verse 10. It says, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you, to bring you back to this place. And then here's the verse that, you know, a lot of you might have a, you know, poster of or, you know, bumper sticker or something. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And Daniel understood that this Scripture was referring to the time that he was living in and and that God had a future and a hope that was planned for his people, Israel, and that part of the fulfillment of seeing them return to their land was that Daniel would begin to pray, that he would pray for the fulfillment of these things. Because as we've talked about before, God not only ordains the ends, he also ordains the means. And God promised that he would fulfill his word But part of that fulfillment was Daniel praying, was the people of God praying for that fulfillment. So what does Daniel do? Verse 3, back in Daniel chapter 9, he says, so I gave my attention to the Lord. Literally, I I gave him my face. That's the, the, the Hebrew expression. I gave him my face to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth and ashes. And we, we walked together through that, that just phenomenal prayer from uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 to 19. It was a powerful, fervent, sincere, biblical prayer, and really so instructive for, for all of us. It's just a, a model prayer. It was uh, provoked by the reading of Scripture as he's reading through the, uh, the book of, of Jeremiah. He's provoked to pray, praying through the words of Scripture. He, he's feeling the pressure of being in Babylon and, and kingdoms changing hands. He's feeling the pressure of the circumstances of life. This, this provokes him to pray. It squeezes him that he would, would lift up his prayers to the Lord. It was provoked by the reading of Scripture, the pressures of life, the posture of his prayer. He was in humble dependence upon the Lord, seeking the promises of, of God, broken and contrite in his spirit. He's broken over the judgment of God that Israel was suffering, and he prayed to the Lord that he would fulfill his promise and that he would lift the, the, the judgment that Israel was under during this time. And then the pattern of prayer, we looked at the, the provocation, the posture, and then the pattern of prayer. The pattern of prayer was this movement back and forth between the adoration of God and his confession of sin. He, he looked at God in verse 4, that God is the great, the awesome God who keeps his covenant. God is faithful, but we're the ones who've sinned. God is righteous, verse 7. He's the, the righteous one. Righteousness belongs to you, but shame belongs to us. He looks up to God. God, you are forgiving. You're the forgiving God to the Lord. Our, our God belong compassion and forgiveness, but we're the ones who've rebelled. And God, you're the delivering God. You're the same God who delivered your people out of the land of, of Egypt with a mighty hand, 
You've made a name for yourself, God. You've delivered your people, but we're the ones who've sinned. We're the ones who've been wicked. He just goes back and forth between the greatness of God and the depravity of sinful humanity. And he says, God, I know that we've been sinful, but would you be pleased to deliver us once again? Would would you be pleased to answer our prayer? And based on the character of God and for the glory of God, he, he offers up a supplication, and he's just asking God to do what he's promised to do. Verse 19, he says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen, take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay because your city and your people are called by your name. So helpful. You know, we we pray that the glory of God would be honored. Even in our prayers for the needs that we have, Lord, I'm, I'm seeking after your glory in these prayers. And it's while Daniel is offering this prayer that Daniel is interrupted mid-thought by an angelic visitor. Look at verse, verses 20 and 21. Now, while I was speaking, this, this is in the middle of his prayer. He, he hasn't even finished his prayer yet. You know, no amen here. <laughs> now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking, again, I'm, I'm still in the middle of it, In prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And then he shares this prophecy with Daniel. And that's the setting. That's the setting that introduces us to one of the most significant prophecies, like I said, in all of the Old Testament. And uh, I'll just let you know up front that we won't have time to get through all of the prophecy today. For those of you who are hoping for more, this is going to be an introduction Uh, But we're going to introduce some very important things, laying out the table for what's to come, and we'll answer a number of introductory questions that will be extremely helpful for us as we dive into this prophecy. So let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer as we uh, come before the Lord's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and uh, Father, we ask for your help. Now, Father, as we often do, as we always do when we preach on on Sundays, Lord, that we, we plead for you to speak to us. Father, we know that this is the the word that you've authored, and uh, Father, we come to the author of the word to understand what the word has to say. And uh, Father, we uh, pray that uh, as your word speaks to us, Lord, that we would not be like those who uh, look at our face in a mirror and walk away unchanged, uh, but Father, that you would transform our lives as we behold the beauty and the authority of your inerrant word. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. First of all, we're introduced to the setting, the setting of this prophecy. In verse 20, it's, it's in the middle of his prayer. While, while I'm speaking and praying and confessing my sin, this is when this prophecy is going to be introduced to Daniel. And it's in a specific response to the prayer that he was offering before the Lord. You know, back in verse 16 again, he says, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger, your wrath, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, Your holy mountain, for because of our sins, the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So he's asking God to act on behalf of his people who are called by his name, and that's what this prophecy is going to be related to. And many times uh, when people jump into the prophetic section in Daniel, they completely disconnect it from the prayer that just came before. Here, Here Daniel's confessing his sins, the sins of his people, presenting a supplication on behalf of the holy mountain of God. Uh, the mountain of God was another name for Jerusalem. city of Jerusalem uh, actually sits on a, a mountain. Uh, that's why people are always said in Scripture to go up to Jerusalem because you're going up in elevation when you go to Jerusalem. It's on a hill, and when you ascend that hill, 
uh, to go to Jerusalem. The temple would have been right there at the top of that hill. In Isaiah chapter 27, it says, It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the holy mountain that Daniel is referring to. Uh, one of the ancient names for uh, this mountain was Zion. Uh, Zion comes from a Hebrew word that means dry, and it was actually used to talk about different sites on the uh, mountain of uh, Jerusalem, but came to refer to the entire mountain itself, a dry mountain. Uh, my wife and I have actually been there, and it is dry uh, there in Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, Zechariah speaks about Zion. I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. So this is what Daniel's referring to. He's referring to this specific place. And Daniel has specifically been offering prayers to the Lord while facing Jerusalem. You know, had his window open facing Jerusalem. So it's, it's directed to heaven, but his face is directed to Jerusalem. And we'll have to keep that in mind. This prophecy is not detached from the people of Israel. This is who he's been praying for specifically, and that's what this prophecy is going to be about. And it was while Daniel was speaking and praying for Jerusalem, confessing their sins, that the man Gabriel shows up. And uh, isn't this an encouragement to all of us to know that while we are praying, that God is actively working on our behalf? (laughs) While he is praying, right in the midst of his prayer, God is already sending the answer. And we'll see this a little bit later uh, down in verse 23. But it says, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued. When you just started to pray, it was already in motion. The answer was already on the way. And it reminded me uh, of uh, a story I heard about uh, George Mueller. If you've ever heard that name, he was a a Christian evangelist and a director of an orphanage uh, that served more than 10,000 children during his lifetime. Incredible to think about that. 10,000 children being served by one orphanage. And uh, George Mueller never sought donations for, uh, from specific individuals. He relied on the Almighty God to provide for the needs that they would have for this orphanage. And the story was told that one morning uh, his orphanage was out of food, and all the, the plates and cups and bowls on the table were, were empty. There's no food in the storage, no money to buy any supplies. The children were standing waiting for their morning meal and And George Mueller said, children, you know how we must be in time for school. Then lifting up his hands, he prayed, dear father, we thank you for what thou art going to give us to eat. With an empty table in front of him. We thank you for what you're about to give us to eat. And then there was a knock on the door. The baker stood there and said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt that you didn't have bread for breakfast and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked some fresh bread and I brought it. Mr. Mueller thanked the baker, and no sooner than he had left when there was a second knock at the door. It was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. A sleepless night and a broken milk cart were no accidents. It's all by divine appointment. And the answer was already on the way when he started to pray. The answer was already on the way. Do we really believe that God is working when we pray? Do do you pray to the Lord in faith that, that, God, I know that you're hearing me, and even though an angel's not showing up to interrupt my prayers, God, I know that the answer is still on the way. I'm I'm trusting you that you're, you're hearing me and that in your sovereignty, in your wisdom, that you will answer this prayer in the way that you see best. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8 says that we're not to be like the pagans 
He says, don't be like them. Don't, don't be like the pagans. We don't pray like orphans. We, we pray to a God, to a Father who knows everything that we need. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 8, he says, so do not be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. He, he already knows what you need. Psalm 139, verse 4 says, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. We come to a Father who knows, who hears, and at the moment that we start to pray, often the answer is already on the way. This is the prophecy was was set. This prophecy was set in the context of a faithful prayer. Daniel is praying to the Lord, and then the Lord delivers the answer. What's, what's the delivery system that he used? How, how did he get the, the answer to, to Daniel? Look at verse 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision, previously came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Uh, there are only uh, two angels mentioned by name in Scripture, uh, Michael and Gabriel, and both of them show up in the book of Daniel. Uh, they're mentioned in Daniel chapter 8, 9, 10, and 12. And the only other book where we find Gabriel by name is the book of, of Luke. Uh, where he announces the birth of John the Baptist and uh, then the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, he's a, a messenger angel, and apparently he's reserved for the most significant announcements. You know, that's when Gabriel shows up, when it's a significant announcement to make. Luke 1, he speaks to the father of John the Baptist and says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. He stands in the presence of God. He's sent for important messages. And he's the same angel, Daniel says, who showed up in my previous vision. Back in chapter 8, in verse 16, it says that I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. And now this person who appeared in a vision now shows up in reality. I mean, you know, talk about the man of your dreams, right? It's like he shows up in a vision, and now he's here, like the same guy that I just saw, like now he's here, which has to be absolutely frightening, <laughs> You know, this guy that I've seen in the vision, he's, he's actually here. He showed up. And it says, so he came near in chapter 8 and verse 17. This Gabriel came near where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. You know, angels aren't these, you know, chubby babies with wings, you know. They're frightening men of war. I mean, just, just terrifying. You know, you fall on your face in the presence of an angel. And here Daniel was, was frightened, fell on his face. And now Daniel sees Gabriel again, interrupting him during, during his prayer. Verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, same one that scared me before, came back. And can you imagine a person you saw in a dream appearing in real life and tapping you on the shoulder? When the, the text says that he came to me, the word for his arrival is literally he touched me or he reached out to me. So it's, it's likely that while Daniel is engage in prayer that he gets this tap on the shoulder that interrupts him right in the middle of it to deliver this message. And why this special delivery? Why would God send a hand-delivered message by an angel to answer Daniel's prayer? There's at least two reasons. Number one, it would highlight the importance of what the angel was about to say. This is an important message. I had to come here myself in order to deliver this message to you, to highlight the importance of it. You know, God doesn't send Gabriel on, uh, you know, small-time missions you know, this is important work that he sends Gabriel for. The end of verse 23 also lets us know that he's to give heed to pay attention to the message. Gain understanding of the vision. Pay attention. Listen up. This is important. So it's an important message that he's about to, to receive. And number two, Gabriel's appearance also indicates the importance of the recipient. 
the importance of Daniel that, that God would think of Daniel to send him a, a personal delivery. In verse 23, it says that Daniel is highly esteemed among men. In, uh, in, in Hebrew, it says uh, esteemed, esteemed. You know, he's esteemed and esteemed again. Uh, it doesn't say you know, highly esteemed the way that the Hebrew spoke. When, when they wanted to emphasize something, they'd repeat it. So, so Daniel, you are, you are esteemed and esteemed. And what makes a man highly esteemed in heaven is not what makes a man highly esteemed on earth. You know, our society looks to you know, people who've got great achievements, possess some great skill. You know, our society tries to get close to people who've got a great position, you're in power. Sadly, it could be true even in the church. You, know, you just get close to the people that you think can get you somewhere, do something for you. Who's the person in the position? You know, that's the person I'll get close to. But who's the person that the God gets close to? <laughs> who's the person that God says, I take notice of that person. I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to that person. Who, who does God pay attention to? Who's highly esteemed in heaven? Isaiah 66, too, lets us know who God takes notice of. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. That's the person I pay attention to. And that was Daniel. He read the words of Jeremiah and he trembled. What the nation, the nation ignored, Daniel shuddered at. He took God's word seriously. That's the kind of man that, that Job was. Job chapter 1 and verse 8, you know, the Lord says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? You know, he took notice of Job and even pointed him out to Satan. It's like, please don't, don't do me that favor, Lord, you know. <laughs> but he even pointed him out to Satan. Have you considered him? This, this is the one that I'm looking at. This is the, the kind of man that, that honors me. There's no one like him on earth, blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's the kind of man that Daniel was. He brought supplication, fasting, sackcloth, ashes, signs of mourning over the sins of his people. He took God's word seriously. And it would make sense that Daniel would even be extremely weak here. Daniel is said to be in extreme weakness because he's been fasting for the sins of his people. If uh, you're looking at an ESV in verse 21, it says, uh, uh, it says in swift flight, uh, but that's based on a conjecture rather uh, than the established meaning of the word. It's, uh, ESV follows the, the root of the word and, you know, uh, one suggestion for what that could mean, but the established meaning of the word is extreme weariness. And why would Daniel be in extreme weariness? What has he been doing? He's been fasting. <laughs> he's been going without food. He's been laboring in prayer. Like, he's extremely weak as he comes into this prayer and Gets the tap by the angel, you know, touched by the angel, right? You want to know who to get close to? Get, get close to people who are on their knees. <laughs> you know, that's the people to take notice of. The people who, uh, who take God's word seriously, that's who God takes notice of. Those are the people that we should notice. And it's while Daniel is in prayer that Gabriel shows up with this important delivery. That's the delivery. We talked about the setting, the delivery. What about the timing? Look at verse 21 again. It says it was about the time of the evening offering. And, that, and that's more than just saying that, that Daniel, you know, looked at his sundial and said, oh, it's about the time of the evening offering, you know. It, it's more than just a, a marker of time. It was a demonstration uh, that, of Daniel's faithfulness and commitment to the Word of God because he longed for the city of God. Does it seem strange to you that it, he would talk about uh, the time of the evening offering? Guess what was, going, what was not going on during the time that Daniel was offering this prayer? An evening offering. <laughs> Why was there no evening offering? Because the temple of God would have been burnt down to the ground. There, there's no offering going on during this time. 
Uh, There's no priest in the temple that are offering anything to the Lord. But Daniel is marking his clock by what would have been happening. Why? Because Daniel is longing to be back in Jerusalem. Lord, I long for your people to be be engaged in the regular worship to you. In uh, Exodus 29, 39, the, the priests were commanded that one lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Uh, twilight would have been around 3 to 4 p.m. But at the time that Daniel offered this prayer, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and burnt to the ground. It would have been decades since an offering would have been made. Daniel's been out of Jerusalem for 76 years at this point. He's been out of Jerusalem, uh, not 76, 67 years at this point. He's been out of Jerusalem for a long time. And the, the temple would have been destroyed at least 50 years at this point. But Daniel is still marking time by what would have been going on. The practice of faithful Jewish believers during this time of the exile is that they would use their time that the sacrifice would have been happening to engage in prayer. In Psalm 141, in verse 2, it says, May my prayer, listen to this, may my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. Would you receive these prayers as if they were the evening offering? Their prayers were offered to the Lord in place of the offerings that would have been given to him. And Daniel expressed his longing to be back in the worship of God at the temple, and he marks it with prayer, desires for the restoration of Israel. He was removed from the the regular worship. He longed to be restored. It reminds us of uh, the words of Psalm 42, where it's in the context of being removed from the regular worship. Psalm 42, that that, that passage that speaks about the, the deer panting after the water brooks, so my soul longs for you, O God. It's in the context of somebody who was removed from the regular worship. It's like the person who's been barred out of the church, and they're longing to be back. And they say, my soul thirsts for you, God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? I I desire to be back, Lord. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy, the thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Daniel says, I remember the temple. I remember what used to happen there. And I've been removed from that, and he longs to be back. And even the timing of his prayer is a reflection that he's, he's thinking about what would have been connected to the, the worship of God in the temple. So that's the, the timing. But how about the purpose? Look at the purpose of the prophecy that's to come. Look in verse 22. It says, He gave me instruction and talked with me. You know, sitting here talking with an angel, incredible. And said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. And we'll spend a little bit of time here. The, the prophecy that we're about to work through in Daniel has been given to us that it might be understood. The end of Daniel chapter uh, uh, 9 and 23, it says, uh, uh, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And the, the one thing that I hope to demonstrate as we start to walk through this, uh, and just, again, just introducing this to you, is that Scripture is meant to give us light. Uh, the, the Word is a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Scripture is meant to give us light. It's, it's not meant to confuse us. It was uh, John Stott who said, Now God has revealed himself chiefly by speaking, and we may be quite sure, therefore, that he has spoken in order to be understood. If God is communicating, he's communicating 
in order that we could understand what he has to say. And then he goes on to say that, uh, that if God has intended Scripture to be uh, the record of divine speech to be plain to its readers, the whole purpose of Revelation is clarity and not confusion. Uh, so the, the reason for communication is that he would be understood. Even the Greek word for revelation, uh, revelation apocalypsis, means an unveiling, an uncovering. It's, it's meant to be understood. So, so the prophecy is, is worth reading. And I'll, I'll just give you a couple reasons why. Number one, why is prophecy worth reading, understanding? Number one, this is where history is heading. This is where history is, is heading. There's nothing impractical about understanding where history is heading. Actually, you could argue that the most practical thing that you could do is to figure out where history is heading and then align yourself with where we're going, right? You know, some of us give more thought about, you know, where we're going to spend our next vacation uh, than where where we'll spend the rest of eternity or what's going to happen, you know, for, say, a thousand years, right? (laughs) Some of you might get that. Some of you don't. It's called the millennium, okay? (laughs) But there's, there's truth that the Scripture speaks about about what's to come, why, why don't we give attention to what is to come? You know, we, we, we buy tickets and shop for clothes and plan out our week when we're going somewhere, but what, what do we plan for what's to come? Like the Lord has given us an itinerary here. He's let us know what's to come. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31 says, he's, a, he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There's coming a time in the future that's fixed. It can't be changed. There's a a final judgment, and there's also wonderful plans that God has for us. It is his story, right? History is his story. It's, a pra- it's practical to study the end times because this is where history is heading, and you can't stop it. Number two, it also occupies much of the Bible's content. Think about this. 17 of the 39 books of the Old Testament are books of prophecy, and one of the New Testament books as well. And many portions of the other books are dedicated to prophecy, One theologian determined that fully one-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. When the disciples ask about the end of the age, Matthew 24, 25, you know, in in the Gospels, not a book of prophecy, but much prophecy is contained in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus doesn't say, you know what, you know, I appreciate that, but let's not get bogged down with all those details, you know, about what's coming into the the future. You know, it'll, it'll all pan out in the end. That's not what Jesus says. Actually, he gives the longest response to any question. By letting them know what's to come. It's about the end times. It's, it's practical because so much of the Bible speaks about it. Why else is it practical to study end times? Because the power and wisdom of God are put on display in the events of the end. In Isaiah chapter 46 and verse 9, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And how does he demonstrate that there's nobody like me? Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. That, that's how I, I glorify myself. That's how I show there's nobody like me, that I can, I can tell you what the end is going to be before it happens. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. The, the power and the wisdom of God are put on display as he predicts the end. What else does it do? It motivates us for holiness. Our study of the end motivates us for holiness. Why don't you flip over to, to 2 Peter real quick. 2 Peter chapter 3. might be helpful for you to see this. The study of the end is not meant to simply satisfy our curiosity, but to increase our holiness. Second Peter chapter 3, look at verse 11. Speaking about the end, it says in verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be 
in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming, the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. What's the practical use of studying prophecy and times? One of the things is that it motivates us to be more holy because we know that there's coming a, a time of reckoning. There's, there's an account that I have to give and that time's gonna come. And all the things that I, I have in this life the things that I might be putting my time and effort into, one day these things are going to you know, just melt away, melt with the intense heat. John, uh, 1 John 3 and verse 3, it says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. If you have this hope, you'll purify yourself. What other practical uses studying end times? We're, we're also comforted by it. Over in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul speaks about the rapture, he says that it's, it's a practical doctrine practical. Why? It says that we are to comfort one another with these words. <laughs> I'm to use these words to bring comfort to people. It's, it's to bring comfort to those that have passed on, even those who've died in the faith. No, there's, there's more to come. You know, they're, they're not gone. They haven't missed out on what the Lord has, has planned. It brings comfort to us in times of affliction. It also brings joy to the believer, it brings us joy. Return of Christ, which is actually what uh, Daniel's going to get into. I mean, there's so much of Christ that he's about to talk about. It's exciting because uh, Jesus is going to be revealed in glory. He's going to destroy the works of Satan. He's going to provide relief for those who are afflicted. The children of God are going to be revealed. The saints will be rewarded, and he's going to set up his kingdom. That's going to come. It's, it's, it's in the future. This is all that end time speaks about. And also, one more thing that I'll add is that God wants you to understand it. God wants you to understand it. Look back in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 22. It says, he gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. This is what I've come for. And actually, this is, this is what was commanded. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplication, the command was issued. God commanded that Daniel would be given an explanation that he would understand. So in direct response to Daniel's prayer, for the restoration of Israel, God commanded Gabriel, go and give him an understanding about what's to, to come. God expects Daniel to understand these things, but he has to give his mind to it, right? This is what it says. Give heed to the message. You know, uh, the, the, the message that we have from, from Scripture, it's, it's, it's to be studied diligently. You know, you don't just kind of like relax and, you know, if, if I don't understand it the first time, you know, it's not worth it. No, it, it, it's worth your effort to understand what's about to be said. So in direct response to Daniel's prayer, he's given this uh, prophecy, and uh, we can be sure that God has spoken in order to be understood. So what is this vision about? And this is where we get into the content. Look at verse 24. It says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. And verse 24 provides us with a preview of what's to come. It's like the, the table of contents, so we know what to expect. What is this prophecy all about? It's about the 70 weeks, literally it's 70 sevens. That word week isn't in the Hebrew, it's actually 70 sevens. 
that have been decreed for your people, your holy city. We'll talk more about that, that later, your people, your holy city. Uh, but there's a specific allotment of time that's been determined to bring about a resolution to the prayer that Daniel has been praying. Daniel, this prayer that you're praying for your people, for your holy city, uh, there's going to come a resolution to that. That's what you've been praying for, and that's what I'm here to talk about. He's been praying on behalf of the holy mountain of his God, and Gabriel says this is what the prophecy is about. It's about the people that you've identified with, your people, your city. And there are six aspects that will be developed in answer to Daniel's prayer. Uh, this allotted time is given in order to understand, in order to, uh, uh, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision, and to anoint the most holy place. And if you think I'm going to cover all of that today, uh, you have a lot more confidence than I do. But Daniel's prayer is going to be answered. Daniel's prayer was going to be, be answered. He says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen, take action for your own sake because your city and your people are called by your name. And we won't work through all of these today, but I do want to give you just some implications of these truths. Number one, do you trust that God is working in our prayers? Do you trust that the God is answering your prayers? That he's listening when you pray? Like I said, we don't come before the Lord as, as orphans. We come before a God who who's our Father. And our Father knows what we need. And our Father has not abandoned us. When we come before the Father, we can trust that, that He hears and that He cares. You know, we can cast our, our anxieties upon Him, upon uh, Christ, because He cares for us. Amen? Another implication is, do you long for the regular worship of God's people? I mean, you, you see Daniel for 67 years, windows open three times a day, facing Jerusalem, longing for the worship, the regular worship of the people of God. Is that how you think about coming together in worship? Is, is worship optional for you? Is coming together with the people of God an option for you? Or is this, this something that you long for? There, there's something that, that, that we do together that we don't do separately. There, there's, a, there's a praise that's given to God when we're together as a community, a body of believers that doesn't happen when we're by ourselves. And as Daniel is thinking about you know, that this offering that would have been given to the Lord, he's longing to be there in the throng of the people of God. There, there's something about the regular worship of God's people as we come together. Another implication, do, we, do, we, do you rest on, in God's love for you? <laughs> you know, think about uh, Daniel. It says that, that he was esteemed, esteemed. He was highly esteemed. You know who else is uh, esteemed in heaven? Those that belong to Jesus Christ. You know, in uh, John 17 and verse 23, that it lets us know that the love that the Father loves the Son with, that he loves you with that same love, that it's the same love, the same love that he loves his Son with, he's also placed on you as a believer, that, that you're esteemed in the, the, the sight of, of God because of our connection to, to Jesus Christ. And then the last implication here is, uh, uh, do you give your attention to the Word of God? <laughs> God has given us his word in order to be understood. Uh, he hasn't given his word in order to confuse us. And even when we come to, to these end times, and, and like I said, this is one of the, uh, one of the most challenging prophecies for, for many interpreters. Uh, but as we, we approach this, we are, I, I know personally I approach this with a, with a sense of excitement. Why? Because I'm expecting God to communicate through his word. I, I don't come to this and just say, I just throw up my hands, you know, who knows, who knows how it's going to end, you know, nobody's, nobody can really be clear. Why do you think he gave us this book? I remember there was uh, one time I was speaking to, to somebody, and uh, it was about a different topic. It was about an uh, election, 
And I said, well, you have to believe in election and predestination because it's in the Bible. I said, what do you do when you come across those words in the scripture? He says, I just pass over them. <laughs> it's like, I just say, well, you know, whatever that means. And I'll just get on to something that I do understand. It's like, how, how can you do that? The Lord has given us his word in order to be understood. We are, we are incredibly, we are an incredibly blessed people that the God has chosen to reveal himself to us, to uncover his word to us. And there's so many riches that we have. And I'm looking forward, like I said, to, to get into to all that we find in the, the prophecy uh, to come, because uh, this is how God is going to instruct us, uh, to reprove us, to exhort us, to encourage us in righteousness so, uh, so that we can better honor and glorify him. Amen. Uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we uh, do thank you uh, so much for uh, this time that we spend in your word and uh, just looking forward to the, the prophecy to come, oh Lord, just so much uh, that's contained uh, in, the, in the prophecy, Lord. And uh, Father, these are things that you've given to us. These are, these are our treasures. Now, Father, we, we look at the, the scripture as, as, as gold. Uh, Father, this is a treasure for us. And Father, I pray that, that you would help us to, to mine the, the riches that are contained in your word. Father, I pray that you'd help us to, uh, to be conformed into the likeness of Christ, Lord, that, uh, that we would use these things, Lord, to, to challenge us, uh, Lord, to, uh, to spur us on to, uh, to love and to good deeds. And uh, Father, I pray that, that we would have a longing, uh, Lord, for these things to be fulfilled as we uh, are going to look forward to the, to the kingdom that's to come, uh, to the promises being fulfilled, to, uh, to even the promises that are given to, to Israel, uh, Lord, that these things will be fulfilled in exactly the same way that Israel was released from captivity in 70 years, that uh, there's promises that are coming into the future, Lord, that are just as sure. Uh, so, Father, I pray that we would look forward to these things and uh, that you would help us as, as your people, uh, Lord, that we would uh, humble ourselves under your word, Lord. This is our authority for life, uh, for godliness, Lord. It's all contained in your word. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.